Welcome to the Modern Mobility Podcast, brought to you by Modern Mobility Partners. This podcast is for transportation planners and enthusiasts who want to learn practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges. And now, here are your co-hosts, certified transportation planners, national experts, and thought leaders, Kelly Kemp and Kirsten Moat. Well, welcome to episode 21 of the Modern Mobility Podcast. I am Kelly Kemp. And I'm Kirsten Moat. And we, as always, are your fabulous co-hosts. In today's episode, we're going to go through four steps to planning for integrated Justice 40 guidance into plans. This is a more in-depth look into uh, federal planning emphasis area number two, which is equity and Justice 40 and transportation planning. And so in the season three opener of our podcast in episode 16, we talk about all the new planning emphasis areas. This is drilling down and getting deeper into that planning emphasis area number two. And today we are joined by our guest co-host Candace Foster, also with Modern Mobility Partners. And Candace actually joined us last season uh, for a couple of episodes. And so we're really excited to have her back. So welcome, Candace. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. So before we get into the nitty gritty, let's first define what Justice 40 is or what the Justice 40 initiative was. So the Justice 40 initiative was enacted by an executive order under the Biden administration. So it is a uh, federal government wide initiative to bring resources to communities most impacted by climate change, pollution and environmental hazards. So, Candace, does that sound about right? Did I summarize that? Yeah, Kelly, that's about right. Specifically, the federal government has made a goal that 40% of the overall benefits for certain federal investments go to disadvantaged communities or communities that are marginalized, underserved, or overburdened by pollution. So basically, it's like an Environmental Justice Act. Some categories of these investments include climate change, clean energy, energy efficiency, clean transportation, affordable and sustainable housing, training and workforce development, remediation and reduction of legacy pollution, and lastly, clean water and waste infrastructure. So they're all based on some sort of environmental factor. And under each federal agency, um, there are a list of covered programs and a federal government program that falls into the scope of the Justice 40 initiative um, would be an example. For example, these can include things like uh, grant programs like CMAC, um, RAISE, Infra, uh, safe, safe Streets for All, for example. At USDOT specifically, uh, Justice 40 aims to address gaps in transportation infrastructure, and USDOT wants to identify and uh, hope to prioritize projects that will benefit these communities facing you know, barriers to, you know, reliable and safe and affordable transportation options. Through the USDOT initiative, USDOT will also try to, you know, uh, look at the negative impacts of transportation projects across communities and will consider if the community have been consulted in a meaningful way during the project's development. So Candace, I mean, this project is really twofold. You've got the technical analysis to understand both positive and negative impacts but also ensuring that meaningful engagement with their communities and their leaders. Yeah, and then uh, if, if you want to listen to our episode in last season on equity, covered more of these negative impacts and strategies like, for example, anti-displacement and housing. Oh, and a bit on terms, I'm using the term disadvantaged here. Um, as that was what was stated in the executive order. However, um, 
I do want to note that there is a more preferred alternative terminology, and this is, could be overburdened or underserved. Um, under my understanding, I'm thinking it's a means to recognize that this was a result of a deliberate lack of investment or disproportionate environmental harms and risk to these communities. Thank you. I think a lot of times those terms get used interchangeably when they really shouldn't. So, I, And definitely there's some preferred alternate terms. So I'm glad you mentioned that, Candace. So this initiative dovetails really with the passing of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, or Bill. And, you know, we've seen that many grant programs, um, the, the USDOT discretionary grant programs, have these Justice 40 considerations when selecting grants, which I frankly am glad to see that they're putting their money where their mouth is. So so uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to see that. Yeah. And Candace, can you give us a little insight when Kelly mentioned Justice 40 considerations in there in the grant process? Do you have like an example of that you can share? Yeah, actually, um, for the RAISE grant program, applicants had to identify whether or not the project was located in a quote-unquote historically disadvantaged community. And uh, and the term quote-unquote historically disadvantaged community was based on interim guidance on the Justice 40 initiative. So grant application for RAISE closed uh, earlier this February, and so they needed some sort of uh, interim guidance to start implementing Justice 40 in their programs. We'll go into the definitions of what a historically disadvantaged community is in a second. But the Notice of Funding Opportunity states that the USDOT must award at least $35 million for projects located in a historically disadvantaged community or um, area of persistent poverty. Area of persistent poverty was another term that they used for uh, help to, you know, identify communities. So there are a lot of terms going on. Yeah, yeah, there certainly is. So what is a historically disadvantaged community and does it differ from the more general disadvantaged, underserved or overburdened? All right, great question. So I looked into this. So historically disadvantaged <laughs> communities, from what I can gather, was the first term that USDOT identified for to identify disadvantaged communities for Justice 40. So like I said, Justice 40 came out, you know, earlier with the bipartisan infrastructure law. So it's just USDOT's term for what they identify as disadvantaged or like we said, underserved or overburdened. Mm -hmm. And these historically disadvantaged communities and the geography here are census tracts. So no, not cities, but a little bit smaller um, census tracts. And they were determined by taking into account, I think it was 22 indicators grouped into um, six major categories of what they called disadvantaged. So, and these categories were transportation, health, environmental, economic uh, resilience and equity. So a lot of the indicators are from the American Community Survey, uh, the ACS by the US Census Bureau, and they put out uh, one-year estimates and five-year estimates every year. Um, an example indicators within the historically disadvantaged community um, uh, model were over 30 minutes, for example, uh, vehicle availability, portion of renters, um, proportion of low-income population, portion under five and over 65, um, thinking about age and disability, uh, those sort of indicators. So what kind of format does the data come in anyway? So for the historically disadvantaged communities, uh, that interim guidance that they put out for recent grant programs, there was a shapefile available. So a shapefile is, for most of you uh, people might know, uh, it's a uh, <laughs> a spatial, uh, spatial way of... Um, 
doing things, geo, geospatial application. So there's a shapefile. A, a mapping yes. file. <laughs> there we go. A mapping file. So there's a shapefile <laughs> available um, for all the disadvantaged census tracts that they have identified across the nation. And of course, you can pull it into your GIS software and just pull out your uh, specific location. However, as we speak at, at the time of this recording, USDOT are... Um, they are developing a new data tool called the Equitable Transportation Community Explorer, which I'll go over uh, in a second. So um, this seems so complex. Like there's so many things <laughs> that they're trying to do and they're trying to update it and make it better. I mean, I I appreciate the complexity of thinking about so many different considerations, what overburdened or underserved might mean, but... It, it does seem like there's a new tool coming out or they're beta testing something. So hopefully it'll just get easier for people to access the data uh, and be able to, to utilize um, utilize all of this information in a meaningful way. Yeah, I, I'd agree. It can be somewhat overwhelming, especially when you have 22 indicators and, you know, and, and there's so much overlap you know, no matter how you slice and dice it. So yeah, no, I agree. Um, so it sounds like at its core, the driving force of, of the Justice 40 initiative is really to, as to your earlier point, Candace, to address decades of underinvestment in environmentally disadvantaged communities. That sound about right? Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. And like you said, with the kind of cursing to your point about tools, yeah, there are a lot of tools. And Kelly, like you said, there are a lot of indicators. Um, <laughs> I think this is a, an attempt or trying to be very transparent in like how they're calculating this because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, when you, you know, sometimes disadvantage has a negative negative connotation to it. Right, and so right. you want to be like, here are the data sets that we uh, um put into these uh, indicators to determine what is actually a disadvantage. So, right, right. Yeah, kind of a fire hose, but. Yeah, I I do kind of see where they're coming from. Sure. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about what the potential implications are to the public. So I would say just overall, there are pretty major implications. I think we're seeing, you know, a clear attempt by USDOT and uh, this administration and just the federal government in general to really try to support disadvantaged, underserved, um, overburdened communities. I'm not sure which term I want to use. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I think if planners apply Justice 40 correctly in the planning process and do this as use the data as it's intended, there's going to be a significant increase in transportation investment going to these communities. We're actually working on Gwinnett County's comprehensive transportation plan right now. And this has really turned into a pretty major focus of the plan you know, trying to weave equity into the evaluation and prioritization process, um, as well as we'll be reviewing the fiscally constrained plan to ensure that appropriate investment goes into the Justice 40 areas, going back to 40% of the benefits should go into these communities. And Candace, you've been integral in that process for for that project. So Kelly, I I think you're taking a similar approach for Chattanooga's long range plan. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, our client on that, the Chattanooga Hamilton County Regional Planning Agency, they house the transportation planning organization there. And they really had the foresight well before the Justice 40 initiative was released. And 
prior to or at the beginning of the long-range transportation plan that we're leading, uh, they actually had the foresight to develop their own equity emphasis areas. So very similar to Justice 40 tracks or areas. As a matter of fact, once Justice 40 was released, we did a comparison and there was a whole lot of overlap, which you would expect. Um, And so they had the foresight to do that. And what we did is um, wove that throughout basically every step of the process in the long range plan, uh, the vision goals and objectives, the performance based framework. So, you know, figuring out, you know, does a project that falls in an equity emphasis area, if it's, you know, thought to improve benefits to those areas, it gets a higher score as part of the evaluation and prioritization for funding. Um, and just, you know, do we see any trends? You know, we looked at uh, safety and equity emphasis areas and hope congestion and a whole bunch of stuff um, and connectivity and access and all of that. But in the end, you know, right now we're wrapping up, you know, the draft fiscally constrained plan. And so we went back now that with this Justice 40 initiative to say, OK, you know, are we getting at least 40 percent? of the benefits are they going to justice 40 areas not just the equity emphasis areas but the official justice 40 areas and indeed we're blowing that out of the water about twice that um and the reason being is because we wove it through every step of the process um so it was literally built into the dna of the plan so anyway so that's been pretty cool and i was really excited when the justice 40 initiative came out and all of ours, we were already all over it. Like, we're like, oh, this is awesome. We're in good shape. So that was exciting. Yeah, that's that's a really good example and a prime example of how how to do equity planning and weave Justice 40 in. But yeah. as we've discussed during last season, there is the other side and that the public can sometimes have negative impacts from transportation improvements. Mm-hmm. So it's really about assessing the benefits, not the dollars. So, yeah. for example, you know, a widening project in an area may help decrease commute times that, that Candace mentioned. I know that's one of those um, indicators is, is travel time. But this project may also require additional right of way, um, which may result in displacement of these communities. And further, projects that historically encourage investment and development sometimes increase property values quickly, forcing lower income households to move because of increased housing costs associated with those property taxes. So there's a lot to consider. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the major takeaway here for the public is that we as planners have a responsibility to look at both sides of the coin. Yeah. We want to focus on making investments in communities that are underrepresented, underserved, but at the same time, we want to make sure that those investments are not going to have those unintended consequences. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I agree. And just to go off with that, Kirsten, I'll just add a little snippet. Thinking about this may go into like theory of planning a little bit, but I hear a lot of people saying, and I myself included, like this, this is just too much. You know, I I just want to widen the road and not consider X, Y, and Z and projects already take too long already. But I think we have to think about, you know, who are we planning for? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, we're planning for people. 
And I think we often think of the transportation network, the system, you know, how to get person or freight from point A to point B, but we also need to consider the person on that segment of that system, you know, yeah. people surrounding the network. And um, and I, 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 I agree, <laughs> it's, it's a lot to think about and it may slow down the planning process a little bit, but you know, at the end of the day, like I just put myself in somebody's shoes uh, who lives next to a place that might be widened and there might be displaced and I would like somebody to come and talk to me about it, yeah, you know, yeah. regardless of how I think about it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And so, you know, kind of to that point, you know, what is our role as transportation planners and, you know, how do we integrate this effectively, but also we want to be thorough, but we try to be efficient. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't want the planning process to take forever and ever. So I guess to that point, I have a question. Do you feel like the Justice 40 initiative has any teeth, so to speak? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So I've been looking through the documentation, and again, this is a, a new program. They're still kind of ironing out the kinks. Um, however, there are some reporting requirements for each federal agency um, with Justice 40 covered programs. And so in the interim guidance, I read that it leaves it up to the agency to define what a transportation quote unquote benefit is. And one of the reporting requirements is that agencies develop some sort of benefit methodology with, within 150 days of the issuance of the guidance. So the guidance came out earlier um, last year, I believe. So I believe uh, USDOT has already developed what they defined as a benefit, but I don't see that documentation um, online anywhere. But so that's one way. Yeah, I was trying to find that a while back too, by the way. Uh, and yeah, I think the Fed submitted it, but it hasn't like trickled down that report. Yeah. And that's, that's not going to be an easy task to develop. You know, how do you define uh, benefits? However, we did have a previous episode this season. So if you haven't mm -hmm. listened to it, check out episode 17, because we give you some guidance on how to calculate user and non-user benefits. So there you go. Yes. and Problem solved. We've got all the answers. Of course. Yes. And we're, I always, shameless plug, we're always happy to assist agencies in developing their methodologies as we have both equity and user benefit expertise in-house at Modern Mobility Partners. Shameless plug. <laughs> Not shameless. It's a true plug. Yes. <laughs> and then I'll also add that uh, 21 programs were selected to pilot the Justice 40 implementation. Um, of that required a development of a stakeholder engagement plan and an implementation plan for Justice 40. Um, for the USDOT, um, the pilot programs that were selected were the Lower No Emissions Vehicle Program and the Bus and Bus Facilities Program under the um, Federal Transit F Administration, FDA. The NOFO, I think it's ju just came out, but what from what I read um, from a webinar that they put out about these two programs is that Justice 40 is a consideration for selection, meaning the FDA will give priority consideration to projects that support Justice 40. And then they also mentioned that applicants should identify how they consider the benefits and the potential burdens a project may create. And they also um, review who would experience them and how they would be measured over time uh, with a specific focus on how the benefits and potential burdens will impact underserved, uh, disadvantaged communities, whatever term they're using. Also, FDA wanted to consider how the application uh, use or will use or incorporate meaningful public engagement in the project process. So that's all the stuff that they want to see in their application. Okay, so really, you know, our role as transportation planners or as consultants or as or if we're a part of public agencies, when we're approaching a project or a plan, 
it's really important to have a good understanding of the surrounding communities and a really good understanding of this program. So when we're developing these grant applications, we can directly respond to the guidance and the expectation of USDOT. All right, so there's some background. Let's transition now and get into the steps of how to incorporate Justice 40 into transportation planning appropriately and adequately. So Candace, I'm gonna turn it over to you. All right, thanks. So there are four major steps. Step one, pretty simple, get to know the tools. So like we talked about before, there are a couple tools in development that transportation planners can use to identify the Justice 40 areas. This is really nice, especially for me. You don't have to do any uh, GIS work or data processing, not too much GIS work or data processing. The first tool is the Climate and Economic Justice Screening Tool. Um, it was developed by the White House Council on Environmental Quality just to support uh, Justice 40. So it's a geospatial mapping tool used to identify disadvantaged communities or communities that are marginalized, un underserved, and overburdened by pollution. So it's downloadable shapefile. The tool is by census tract and it uses the following categories to identify disadvantage. They think about climate change, energy, health, housing, legacy pollution, transportation, water, wastewater, uh, workforce development. And um, this was rele released late last year, and you can go take a look at the tool. The second tool is by the United States Department of Transportation, USDOT. And like I said before, it's called the Equitable Transportation Community Explorer. So like I said before, they had the historically disadvantaged criteria, and this tool is kind of an update of that. It incorporates climate and disaster risk, environmental burden, health, social vulnerability, transportation insecurities. This is also by census tract and data is also downloadable. The tool is currently in the uh, development process. You can look at it right now, it's in, a, in an experimental phase. They're currently doing a request for information for public comment at the time of this recording. So there was an opportunity to provide your feedback. And one of my feedback for this tool would be to provide some uh, data on, at the census block group level. So census tract are a little bit larger. And then census block mm -hmm. groups are about smaller, I think about 500 to 1,000 people. So a little bit uh, smaller granulation, which I'll go into in a second as well. Yeah, and, and then, you know, another one that I just thought of, but I think is kind of being replaced by these new ones is but that we used last year um, and the year before probably is the Center for Disease Control's Social Vulnerability Index mm -hmm. tool or SVI. So that's another one. So there's, but but that one's a little bit older. So uh, of these new ones, uh, which one should we use? Yeah, uh, USDOT suggests using both. Um, both of them use the same cutoff for measuring percentiles to determine if a census tract is disadvantaged for consistency between the two tools. But I would suggest that you can use both. They might use slightly different indicators, but they both kind of pull from that kind of older data set, like the SVI. They also pull from um, the EJ screen. So a lot of those indicators are uh, used in these tools. So it's kind of like an upgrade of those. Yeah, and both of these are by census tract, right? Yes. I know you mentioned the second one was, but yeah, both of them are, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so step two is that you see the tools, they're working on them. Step two is to get to know the data. So these tools are you know, great. You don't have to do any of this GIS processing by yourself. But it's also good to have an understanding of the data used. Um, so like I said, a lot of it is from the Com American Community Survey. 
Um, we've all heard of the ACS, but to be honest, I was surprised how much data they actually have. Um, um, like, not only do they have means of transportation to work, but they have uh, commute times. Um, it has a trout broken down by occupation, by earnings. They have renter population, housing cost burdens, stuff like that. So a lot of different data. But that comes with a problem, uh, knowing what data to use. For example, I found that there are a lot of American Community Survey tables out there. And I found that uh, this <laughs> resource called censusreporter.org um, provides great explanations of each table, kind of breaks it down, like, what does this table mean? That's yeah. awesome. Well, I assume we'll have yeah. that in the show notes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I and and it's one that I'm probably gonna bookmark in my mm -hmm. browser too, because it it is the last time I went on the ACS website, which wasn't too long ago. I like I got in there, started looking around, and I was like, nope. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. It's like me and GIS. It's like I look at the screen of GIS now. I'm like, nope, nope. <laughs> I'm going to have to find somebody else to help me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So outside of the census or the ACS, are there other data sources out there that can help glean information about Justice 40 or equity in general? Yeah. So uh, the EPA provides a lot of environmental environmental data, uh, air quality data, uh, hazardous sites, stuff like that. There are other several data sources that can be used to dive a little bit more deeper into travel patterns. For example, Redis can uh, look at travel speed and congestion. You can also use GIS and analytics to run travel sheds and not on the traditional travel bands, but using the, the street, the transit network, or the sidewalk network. And we can see from a single point, you know, how far somebody can get within a certain uh, amount of time, like a uh, walk shed. Um, this gives us really good insight into the travel times uh, for your disadvantaged communities and where improvements could be made uh, to make those trips shorter. Yeah, and we're actually yeah. using that GIS analytics, the trip analytics, to understand transit propensity for um, a project that we're doing up in Nashville, Tennessee, trying to understand, you know, what is the ridership potential based on the density of residences and, and employees around stations and using the street network mm -hmm. as well as the transit network to understand, you know, those those more detailed travel sheds. And that's a GIS analytics is an extension in ArcGIS, right? Is that an additional extension? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it doesn't come with the standard. Yes, apparently. it doesn't come with the standard. <laughs> I know that because I approved the purchase. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's Thank but you, it's Kelly. well worth it. <laughs> I just didn't want folks to think, you know, start looking in their software and thinking they're supposed to have it. So you got to pay extra for that. One thing I just want to mention before we get into the next step that I, I think is a very compelling way to look at it. I heard, I can't remember who it was, but I heard a couple of years ago, someone explaining in a presentation very thoughtfully that when you do these travel sheds, um, by sidewalk, bike, transit, vehicle, uh, you're able to see people's freedom. So if you're in a transit dependent community and they can only get, you know, so far on transit or by walking or biking, and then you look at how far people on autos can get, you're like, you know how they talk about in New York City, you like live on a few blocks and you never go anywhere else. 
it's kind of like the same concept not that I've ever lived in New York City but I just see that on TV um, <laughs> but it's like the same concept that you can only get so far and you can only reach so many jobs obviously but then just your whole your your circle is so much smaller and so you don't have that freedom to go as far so just wanted to put that out there yeah and I'll just do another little shameless plug <laughs> that we're doing an, an accessibility index for the city of Spartanburg mm. using this GIS analytics to see where those gaps are to increase people's freedom around the city from a uh, pedestrian standpoint. Oh, that sounds cool. I didn't so, know we were doing that. <laughs> yes, we are. That's cool. Oh, that might be a whole nother podcast episode. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. All right. We'll let you get back to it, Candace. <laughs> All right. And I'll add a little story uh, to go with Kelly's point. We love stories. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so when I lived, I lived in D.C. before I mm -hmm. went to grad school. I lived in D.C. for two years. And really, I brought my car back home to my parents' home mm -hmm. in Atlanta because I didn't need my car. Um, but I find it interesting that living in Atlanta now, mm -hmm. uh, I have my car. I need a car. Um, but I go less or go fewer places, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So uh, in D.C., I have the whole city. Right. Yeah. Transit, yeah. You if know, you have everywhere. good coverage. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can, you know, make friends, you know, you can meet people, you can go to work, you have a great kind of walk shed or not walk shed, travel but transit shed. shed. Yeah. shed. Mm -hmm. Travel shed. But in Atlanta, I feel myself just going to destinations because I need my car to uh, get there. Yeah. Um, and then my, my walk shed is a little bit very small. It's much smaller because, you know, I'm bounded by. I-75, 85. And it's hot example. outside in the so summer. So I can go. Yes, and it's hot outside. It's hot. <laughs> Anyways, just mm -hmm. a little aside. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's interesting. And yeah, it's, it, it really depends on how good that transit, bike, and pedestrian network is. And that's, you know, on what your, how far of a travel shed you have and that freedom. And that's our role as transportation planners and in, in this justice 40 initiative and beyond is making sure we do improve those bike ped transit networks to increase your travel sheds yeah yeah so step one was get to know the tools step two was get to know the data and now we're on step three uh, get more granular so while the data is available for the web tools we talked about, you might want to dive it a bit deeper. So like we said, these are uh, this data tools provide data on the census tract level. The census tract contains roughly 4,000 people. I just mm -hmm. looked it up. But you may want to go uh, further. You, want, you may want to go even smaller, for example, by census block, which is the, I want to say 600 to 1,200 mm -hmm. people. Uh, uh, we'll go. We'll, we'll <laughs> go with that. <laughs> Around that. So. The ACS, American Community Survey, does provide data at the census block level. However, some data is not available at the scale. However, for the Gwinnett County CTP, I was able to download most data that they used to de define historically disadvantaged communities. So besides the environmental data, I had a lot of the ACS data at the census block level. So I think I used about 14 indicators, and these were things that ranged from having insurance, owning a house, renting a house, uh, housing burden. Housing mm -hmm. burden means that you spend more than 30% of your income on your housing. So yeah. You, yeah. yeah. So that's a measure that I I didn't know about until now. 
uh, mm-hmm. educational attainment, like less than high school diploma, persons with disabilities, zero car households, limited English speaking households. So I, I pulled all of that at the census block level. So that's all available. And with that, I was able to, you know, map it. It took a little bit of time, but I was able to map it. And getting more granular, this may help you as you go into the next step, step four, which is ground truthing the data. For example, for the Gwinnett CTP, there is a census tract um, that was identified as historically uh, disadvantaged on the USDOT tool, USDOT census tract tool or shapefile. However, at the census block level, I found that it was mostly one block contributing to mm. the the census tract being uh, classified as historically disadvantaged. So, you know, they did a really great job of piling out all this information, but, you know, there's a little bit of subtle nuances that you might want to tease out. So this can be really helpful if you want to, like, pinpoint specific project locations because census tract, uh, census block groups, excuse me, uh, often, you know, go along transportation network lines. So um, you can see, like, here adjacent to this uh, road segment, you can see a mm-hmm. high population of, you know, limited English-speaking households, for example. And you can say, you know, maybe that be, might be somewhere you want to put, you know, a sign in Spanish or something like that. So Yeah. So this is really helpful. And, in, in, um, you know, maybe the USDOT tool is used to kind of highlight those census tracts, you know, where you need to focus, but you do need to drill down at that block level, for sure, to your point. So this is helpful. Can you tell it? You mentioned that you did uh, some a mapping tool. So can you tell us a little bit about the map tool you created and, and all the components? I know you mentioned the indicators, but is there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, why don't you yeah, tell us so about that? So I made this tool um, using ArcGIS Pro. A lot of you people, a lot of y- y'all, ArcGIS <laughs> Pro has like a monopoly on this GIS game. But yeah, um, <laughs> yeah for sure. So um, I was able to get all this data on ArcGIS Pro. From the U.S. Census Bureau, the, their data downloads are a table, and then you join it to the spatial information, the census blocks. That's pretty easy. There is a bit of learning curve, but if you have you know basic JS schools, you can you can manage it. So what I did was I just looked up the data on the census website, and you know I found it's best to search for the data using the exact table number. So instead of putting you know zero car households, you want to put B three two one five four you know all that into the search bar. Uh, you can refer to that census reporter website to help you um, get those uh, specific data table numbers. There's some very minor data processing that may that can be done in Excel. It's basically just truncating a data field and making sure it's in the right format. Uh, can I just say that I love how you just say it's a very minor data <laughs> processing and it's just truncating a data field. Like, <laughs> so I've been in the industry 25 years now. And yes, I have done that before, but I think it's been 15 years since I've done it. I wouldn't like, I'd, I wouldn't even know where to it's begin. It's a very, <laughs> very <laughs> simple, um, very simple uh, Excel equation. Excel, yeah. Yeah. I don't remember that formula. <laughs> yeah no I mean I'll I'll second that like I used to be a whiz at the census website like so proud of myself but we're talking like 2000 census right and we're in 2023 Um, now and then when by the way right and then when 2010 came out I was like oh okay I got this it's a learning curve but I got it and I was still pretty good now I'm I've like hit the threshold of just being old. Like I just don't even know where to start. It's like technology, right? Like at some point as you get older, you don't care about the technology. You just want the one that you know how to work. 
And like that's how I feel about like the census website. I'm like I I just I'm I, I just can't. That's why we it have anymore. fabulous planners like Candace so. and all the other folks at our office <laughs> to do that for us. Yeah, we old yeah. geezers. We just don't remember. We just can't figure it out now. <laughs> you can yes. do it so much faster. I'm getting old too. Like okay, for our viewers, I'm the on the cusp of millennial and Gen Z. So I'm kind of. I'm kind of millennial, and that's kind of getting old now. So you know, I'm kind of getting old. You know, we'll see. (laughs) Kind of getting old. Kind of getting old. Oh God, there's so much I could say right now, but I'm not because it'll really age me. (laughs) I think I think we have three three different generations on this podcast. Well, so I'm Gen X. Yeah, you're Gen X, and I'm like on the cusp of millennial and Gen Z. So I would say I'm millennial. Because the kids these days, yeah. like, they're okay. a new breed. <laughs> the kids these days. Oh, Agreed, Candace. You and I agree on that. Yes, we're definitely a multi-generational uh, company, for sure. <laughs> All right. And step four is to ground truth the data through stakeholder and public engagement. So... We all love, you know, our data sets, you know, provides us so much information, um, but it's also important to get some of that local context to further understand the nuances of an area. You know, data could be old, it could be, you know, miscalculated somewhere. There might be some fuzziness to the data, you know, making sure um, everybody's privacy is protected. So if you go down to that really granular level, you might get a little, you know, weird, weird things going on. Um, but doing this scan of potential underserved areas, whether it's using the tools or downloading the data yourself and doing your own uh, JS analysis, you can begin to, you know, pinpoint the areas of outreach or potential stakeholder partners, for example. Um, you can, per, you know, you can perhaps show them these tools and ask them, you know, if you want to take a look at it, go ahead. Or you can ask for further information on that neighborhood or community. You know, for example, looking at the Gwinnett CDP, I found this weird, you know, little census block group, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, it had a high population of over 65 and a high number of zero core households. And then look closer, there's a senior living facility there. So you know. Um, you can ask questions like, you know, how's the sidewalk infrastructure there? Because, you know, we all like to put our little man on the Google map, but sometimes that coverage is old and, you know, you don't really have Mm -hmm. that knowledge unless you go there in person or, you know, you consult your stakeholders to get that information, you know, more questions that you can ask for like, have any specific concern come out of this area? You know, who is, is anybody talking about this area from word of mouth? Sometimes word of mouth and, you know, verbal communication, that community aspect we don't really get as planners sometimes without our stakeholder engagement. So Justice 40 data can be a great starting point for this discussion. Yeah, and I, I love that this granular data can be used with the community. And, and you're right, they will know best why you're seeing different data trends and you can really dig in with them. Like, you know, I'd mentioned earlier the Chattanooga Transportation Planning Organization had developed these equity emphasis areas for the long range plan, the long range transportation plan. They actually, you know, we created a lot of GIS online story maps for that project and and they did as well. And they actually created 
an online story map around the equity emphasis areas and then had an opportunity for the general public to provide comments on those and they could pinpoint on the map, hey, does this make sense to you? You know, are, are there areas that we don't have here that the data is not showing us? Um, so they recognize the value and that ground truthing of the data and, you know, being able to go out to the public and, and get their input on that as well. So I, I like that. Yeah, and then you you hear over and over that, you know, building trust with the community and your, your stakeholders first is key. And mm -hmm. you can bring in some of that data and just ask questions. Yeah. And more times than not, the community, you're like, just, you know, <laughs> wants to be heard. Yeah. Um, they want to help. They want to better their community. I don't think anybody wants to, you know, purposely make the community worse. Yeah. So, um, you know, think about, you know, people come in with a you know, drive to better their communities and we should, you know, take a take stock on that. Yeah. Well, kind of wrapping it up, we'll put a nice little bow on it with another question that I have for you, Candace. So once we have all this data, we've spoken to the community, then what? Like, do we just plop it into the existing conditions report and now we have equity incorporated? <laughs> so you certainly need to document your findings. Okay. <laughs> um, I laugh because um, I... I Sometimes we don't know what to do with the, with the information. <laughs> yeah. um, I, and I've seen that ha happen multiple times. Um, but of course, there's so much more than you can more you can do than just you know document your findings. Mm -hmm. uh, first, you can use the Justice 40 as part of your evaluation and um, prior prioritization as a criteria for projects. Uh, you can simply you know score whether a project is in a Justice 40 community, or you can get more granular and focus on the benefits of the project. Um, for example, will this, will this project decrease travel times for Justice 40 community? Would it provide alternative tra transportation access to a community um, with a high concentration of zero-call households? The criteria is really up to the planner, um, but this method provides a little more thought into the specifics of what is affecting the community. And um, of course, we are the planners. Um, we're not the implementers, um, so we can, you know, provide all the information and the insight that we can. Um, uh, but it's, uh, you know, up to the next, you know, step in the uh, transformation game. I don't know if you want to call it to make uh, some of these Justice 40, you know, projects really, you know, have some teeth. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you talked a little bit about prioritizing transportation infrastructure projects. Um, based off of whether or not they benefit Justice 40 areas. And on the flip side, you know, and I think you alluded to this some as well, you can identify projects that improve mobility and safety and access um, for those areas prior to evaluating and prioritizing them as well. So, and it goes back to kind of, you know, threading it throughout the entire plan or study from beginning to end. You know, and we mentioned that earlier, uh, how we did that in Chattanooga and, and it's similar in other areas as well. So, you know, you could use the map tool or a version of that, like you talked about, Candace, that you did and um, that you created and discuss. And if you identify, say, a retirement community or, tr or transit dependent area that does not have adequate sidewalks around it, you can identify sidewalk improvements for evaluation. And then later, those prod those sidewalk improvements are could potentially get um, a higher priority because they improve mobility 
in that underserved community. And then one step further, if you're, say, for instance, a metropolitan planning organization and you have project sponsors, like if you're a big MPO and you have counties and cities that are project sponsors and they're responding to your call for projects and submitting projects um, to be considered for funding, you can have a pot of money that you set aside that says, okay, we need to spend this much on uh, areas that benefit Justice 40 areas or they're, they're going to get a higher priority or whatever. So you can put your money where your mouth is there as well and yeah. future calls. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we also mentioned earlier about reviewing the fiscally constrained plan. Um, and if the plan has one, not all plans do, but if it does, you know, seeing if those beneficial projects are in the Justice 40 areas and perhaps making some adjustments to your fiscal plan to meet that 40% threshold. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So I know that was a lot, but um, that was such a uh, interesting topic and it just applies to everything that we do as transportation planners. So I, th- I thought that was a really good conversation. So we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, we want to thank everyone for tuning in. If you are a nationally certified planner through the American Institute of Certified Planners, uh, this episode is eligible, as are all of our other episodes, for AICP continuing maintenance credits. So you can find all of our podcasts on the on our website, but also if you go to the American Planning Association website at planning.org to log your AICP credits and just do a search under AICPC and Providers for Modern Mobility Partners, you'll see all of our podcasts come up. Um, If you want to learn more about how we at Modern Mobility Partners can help you, you can find us at modernmobilitypartners.com. We will also have a downloadable free cheat sheet for today's episode, as well as for all of our other episodes up there on our website also. Um, So that's a nice handy takeaway. Uh, And as always, don't forget to subscribe and even better review our podcast sharing and reviewing our podcast on how is how you can thank us for all of our free fabulous content and training uh and you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify and anywhere else you listen to your podcast and with that we are over and out all right bye thank y'all bye Thank you for tuning in to Modern Mobility. If you work for an organization that has implemented innovative and practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges and are interested in being on our podcast, email us at podcast at modernmobilitypartners.com. Want to learn more about our consulting services? Check us out at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.